0: to those who sit in jail at Don't we have the right to be in drink? Don't we really have the right to take a believing life along with us arrested by other apostles and the Lord's friending and seekness? Or is it only by even Barnabas who lack the right to not work a living? Who serves as a soldier? most do not muzzle and watch while it is turning out the grain. This is it about oxygen that God is concerned. Turning these things is for oxygen, doesn't it? Yes, this was written for us because whoever plows and delivers stresses should be able to do so in the hope of sharing in the environment. If we have some This way of support for me shouldn't read about it all the more. But we did not use this way. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. We can know that those who serve in the temple and pull food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar and what is offered up on the altar. Writing about the life of the artist and how the artist is called to uh, extinguish themselves, to set themselves on fire, to to totally exhaust themselves in the display of truth and beauty for the integrity of the story. We've seen that. We've seen artists do that. That's probably on Friday night at a Bulls Crossing when you pay big money to see Leonardo. Draw, liberty, sleep the you, you saw it when you watched Gene Fox portray Ray Charles, and during the filming, he actually wore a prosthetic eye lens so that he was totally blind during the filming. In fact, there were stories that John crew would walk off and meet the second demon there forgetting that he was blind. You saw it when you watched the He lived in a crack house. It didn't eat the entire family He lived in Brody and Kiev. In order to prepare for that role, he moved to Europe and lived homeless out of two suitcases. He too. Faith. and that faith is not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For you are his workmanship, his masterpieces, his in the Greek, poema, his poems. You are a poem of God written to do good works which he has prepared in advance for you to do. You that artist, you are called to sacrifice, to display the truth and the beauty for the integrity of the story. To you, Welcome back to First Corinthians. We left off last summer at the end of chapter 8. Remember that the theme, the overall picture of First Corinthians is a letter about the beauty of Christ. And we are called to live out that beauty in the various arenas of our lives. We live it out as broken people. It's a broken kind of beauty. But it's the beauty of Christ that motivates everything we do as a follower and as a church. It's the beauty What I want to do now is actually take us to a movie, the Bible Project video. Now, by the way, a great resource, the Bible Project video, and Books like you're about to see, uh, videos, on every, uh, not every book, but many of the books of the Bible. It's a great tool. I thought it'd be good for us to show the one on First Corinthians, so that again you get a sense of the whole book and the big picture, and then we'll come back and pick up First Corinthians chapter nine. So, popcorn, place Paul's first
1: letter to the Corinthians. Written to a church community that Paul knew really well. Corinth was a major port city in the ancient world and had lots of temples to Greek and Roman gods. It was a big economic center. And so Paul strategically came here as a missionary. He spent a year and a half there getting to know people, talking to them about Jesus. And a whole bunch of people became followers of Jesus and formed a church community. You can read about all of this in Acts chapter 18. So after a while, Paul moved on to start churches in other cities, and he started getting reports that things were not going well at all back at the church in Corinth. It was plagued by all kinds of problems, and that's why he wrote this letter. It's broken up into five main parts along with a final greeting, and these five sections correspond to five main problems that Paul is addressing. And so the letter reads like a collection of short essays on different topics, but there are these core ideas that unite all of the pieces together. So here's what he does in each section. He describes the problem, but then he always responds to that problem with some part of the story of the gospel, which is the good news about Jesus. And he shows how they're actually not living out what they say they believe. And so this letter is all about learning to think about every area of life through the lens of the gospel. So let's dive in and see how he does it. In chapters 1 through 4, the problem is that there are these divisions in the church. There are some other teachers who had come through town since Paul left, a guy named Apollos and then Peter, and people had picked their favorite teacher and then became groupies around that leader and then started to talk bad and disrespect people who favored another leader or teacher. And so Paul, his response to this is kind of sarcastic and sharp. He says, you have to be kidding me. The church is not a popularity contest. The church is a community of people who are centered around Jesus, Jesus. Its leaders and its teachers are simply servants of Jesus. So while you might prefer one leader more than another, it's not worth dividing over and certainly not speaking poorly about each other. The center of the church is Jesus and the good news about who he is and what he's done. In chapters 5 through 7, Paul addresses some problems related to sex. There were a number of people sleeping around in the church. One guy with his stepmother a number of other people still worshiping at the local temples to greet gods and sleeping with the prostitutes who worked there. Not only that, but there were people in the church who were saying that this was all just fine. They said, hey, we're free in Christ. God's grace is bottomless, right? It's fine. Paul says it's not fine. And with the gospel in hand, he shows just how wrong-headed this kind of thinking is. He says, remember, first of all, Jesus died for your sins including the ruin of broken relationships that's caused by sexual misconduct. And so, if you're a Christian, sexual integrity is one of the main ways that we respond to Jesus' love and grace. Paul also reminds them that just as Jesus was physically raised from the dead, so our bodies will be raised from the dead, which means this. If your body is being redeemed by Jesus, now and in the future, then what you do with your body matters. It matters a lot. And it's not yours to do whatever you want with. Paul's being super clear. Being a follower of Jesus involves no compromise when it comes to sexual integrity. In chapters 8 through 10, the issue is about food, but not just food preferences like do you like or dislike a certain food. The issue the Corinthians were divided over is meat that came from animals sacrificed in the local temples to Greek and Roman gods. And there was a split between the Jewish and non-Jewish Christians about how to respond to this issue. And once again, Paul appeals to some core ideas from the gospel. He says our allegiance, first and foremost, is to Jesus as Lord, not to any other gods. And so if you're in a situation where there's meat that's been dedicated to another god and there are people around who might watch you and conclude, oh, look. Hey, Christians worship Jesus, and they can worship other gods too. Paul says if that's the scenario, don't eat the meat. Your loyalty is to Jesus, and you should love those people more than yourself and not mislead them. But Paul quickly qualifies this and says, Listen, as Christians, we believe God is the creator of all things, including that animal. And the temple idols, we believe, are just pieces of wood and stone. So if there's no one around who's going to misunderstand your actions and you're hungry, eat up. You're free as a new human in Christ to follow your conscience in these kind of debatable matters. So what makes it okay in one situation to eat but not in the other? The core principle is love. Love will deny itself and look out for the well-being of other people. And love, God's love, is at the core of the gospel. It's what Jesus did when he died And so Paul says it's what Christians should do for other people. In chapters 11 through 14, Paul moves on and addresses problems in their weekly worship gathering. There were some people who were having really powerful spiritual experiences in the gathering, and so they would start praying out loud in unknown languages. There were other people who might start sharing a teaching or a word from God, and then someone would get up and interrupt them because they wanted to share And it all was really chaotic, and it was distracting people, especially visitors, from hearing the gospel. So in these chapters, Paul helps them think, first of all, about the purpose of this gathering, to help them see what kind of behaviors are appropriate. He says the gathering is a place where God's Spirit should be working through everybody, and it should happen in a unified way. So he develops this cool metaphor about the church as a human body. It's one, but it has all these different parts. And each part serves a unique and important role. So he goes on to name a whole bunch of things that the Spirit does through all these different people, all for the building up of the church. That's a key phrase in these chapters. And Paul concludes that the highest value in the gathering should be a concept central to the gospel, God's love. And Love is a key word in these chapters too. Love will compel each person in the gathering to use their role to serve and seek the well-being of others. So Paul applies all this to the Corinthians' problems. Some people think the purpose of the gathering is to have intense spiritual experiences or to get a chance to speak their mind. And and Paul says, listen, I'm a big fan of powerful experiences of prayer. But if it distracts other people or freaks them out, I should stop it because I'm loving myself more than I'm loving those people. The gathering around Jesus should be orderly so everybody can learn and sing and worship and hear God speaking to them. The last problem Paul addresses is the issue of Jesus' resurrection and the future hope of Jesus' followers. There were some people in the church who were saying that the idea of resurrection is ridiculous and doesn't really matter to being a Christian. And Paul reacts to this big time. He begins by saying that the resurrection is an indispensable part of the gospel. We believe in it because of the hundreds of eyewitnesses that saw Jesus alive in a physical body after being publicly executed by the Romans. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, Paul says, then his death was meaningless. We are all still lost in our sin and selfishness. We should just stop being Christians. Paul then shows in detail how the resurrection was Jesus' victory over death and evil how it's a source of life and power for us now in the present, and how it's a promise of future hope for the whole world. It's because of the resurrection that we have a reason to be unified around Jesus. It's the reason we have motivation for sexual integrity. It's the source of power for loving other people more than ourselves. And ultimately, it's our hope for victory over death. And so, Paul concludes, we do believe Jesus was raised from the dead, which means this. The gospel is not just moral advice or a recipe for private spirituality. It's an announcement about Jesus that opens up a whole new reality. And that's what 1 Corinthians is all about, seeing every part of life through the lens of that gospel.
0: chapter 9, but every text finds its meaning from its context, and so we dip back into chapter 8 in just a minute. Chapter 8, as we saw in the video, was that chapter about food sacrifice to idols. You need to understand that in that day, the pagan purpose here, like most any open market, the meat you would buy, would have already been offered at the pagan temples, And so, uh, there was just no controversy in the early church if you wanted to eat meat you with a clear conscience eat meat that had been offered to the goddess earlier Again, you had to work it through. There were those that Paul calls them the strong who had really thought it through and realized that, you know, an idol is just a piece of wood or stone and meat is meat and there's nothing wrong with this meat. So eat it. But there were those who maybe were new converts, who were, had been saved out of the pagan religion, and for them it was still kind of a questionable or even painful experience because it took them back to maybe memories and experiences they had were good. So Paul says, look, when you approach these questionable issues, the boundary for Christians is set by love, not knowledge, love, you may know the truth and everything that I meat offered to an idol is or dismissed. But it doesn't matter. What matters is that whether you choose to eat or not is the is made by how it impacts other people. Love And it has to do with him being the founding pastor, of course, and then the, the right that he has as a pastor to take financial support from them. But that's the premise, that anyone who makes their living from the gospel has a right to financial support. The then Paul pivots and said, but in this case, I'm not going to take your salary. Because there's a greater picture here about what's best for the gospel. So he pays a this and says, I won't take the salary. And then at the end, he tells us why. Because he lives for a greater promise, for a bigger story, for the truth and beauty, the integrity of the story. So today, as we walk through chapter 9, we're going to see the premise that a minister of the gospel has a right to be paid. But the pivot, Paul says, but can you corner, because you have a hang up around this, I'm not taking the salary. Because, for me, there's this bigger promise and bigger picture. So are you ready to walk through with me on this? Uh, and uh, at the end, we'll get to one key word that I want to you this week. Now, let's start at the beginning of uh, chapter 9. Some background here. You know, uh, traveling preachers made their living in one of four ways back in that day. You either charge fees, and they would pay you when you give the talk. Or secondly, you found a wealthy patron who would underwrite all of your expenses. And thirdly, you were just a beggar, and you just wondered and said, "God will provide today for what I need." Or fourthly, you were a, a cake maker. You, you supported yourself by actually working two jobs, bi-vocational, and that's what Paul chose. He chose to be a bi-vocational pastor at clerk, and he supported himself by being what the text now, understand the pig maker back in that day, we would probably put it on a, a level of a, of a janitor. By the way, I have huge respect for janitors. The best job I've ever had next to being a pastor was a janitor from college. So, a janitor, though, is one of those jobs that only gets noticed if it doesn't happen. It doesn't have a lot of esteem. You don't go to the uh, job fair. I mean, Paul basically sewed sails together, repaired fishing nets, and created corns for buildings and porches. That's what he did so that he could work and preach the Gospel like court. And apparently, when the, the Christians were embarrassed by it. I mean, it would be something like me deciding that, uh, for whatever reason, for the greater good of the Gospel, I'm going to t- stop taking the salary that you pay me, and in order to support myself, but still preach here, I'm going to sell Hoover vacuum cleaner's door to door. would you still think I was a real pastor? That's the situation, of course. So now, Paul says about defending his rights and the reason he gives up his rights as a minister of the gospel. So the term is this, a preacher of the gospel has the right to be paid preaching the gospel. And in verses 1 through 14, that's what Paul does. And actually, this is a great example of a legal brief from the ancient world. This Paul, before he was a Christian, was a lawyer. And you see his ways coming out in this chapter. And it's an amazing piece of writing. I was reading a biography, by the way, of Woodrow Wilson, who used to be, uh, in the early turn of the century, since 1900, the president of Princeton University. And in the law school of Princeton University, reading the letters of Paul was required in order to become a lawyer. Because there's such good legal briefs. So let's read through this legal brief of 1 Corinthians 9. Paul begins in verses 1 through 3. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though you may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you. I may not be an apostle. I am to you. You are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. So, Paul's starting, not just in the middle, way up here, He's saying, I'm just not, I'm not just your pastor. I'm an apostle. That's where we start this argument, that I deserve to be paid. I'm an apostle. Now, you understand the definition of apostle. It literally means saint one. An apostle in the early church was one who first had seen with his own eyes Jesus Christ. There was 12, and then after his resurrection, there were post-Eastern apostles. But in order to be an apostle in the church, you had to have literally seen Jesus. And then secondly, you had to be commissioned by Jesus himself. And we remember that Paul, who previously, to his commission, had been a Jewish warrior carrying Christians off to be put in jail and martyred. But Jesus appeared to Paul. How great is grace, just Paul and said, Paul, I'm real. I'm here. Follow me. And now Paul becomes an apostle. A he says, you are the seal of my apostleship in the world." And the idea of a seal in the ancient world was that if you received a cargo or crate of dates, let's say, the, the last would be wrapped in twine and then covered in wax with a number written on it which would guarantee freshness. The idea of seal is to guarantee or on a letter, if you received a to it would be sealed with dots of wax on it. And if one of those was open, the legality of your letter would be questioned. Paul's saying, that's what I am to you. In other words, Paul, if you're having trouble with me being a tech I'm the apostle who started you. If I'm not genuine, what does that say about you? Because I started you. So Paul starts the argument way up here. I'm an apostle. Then he goes on to talk about, as an apostle, as a founding pastor, I deserve salary from you. He starts in verses 4 through 6 with the early church practice already in place. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a wife along with us, as do the Lord's brothers and, and uh, Peter, Cephas? Peter, other only eye Barnabas, who left the to not work for the living. In other words, the, the already established practice in the early church was that churches paid their pastors. They financially supported them so that they could preach the gospel. Paul says that's the practice But he goes on in verse 7. He says, this is how the everyday world works, by the way. Who serves as a soldier at his own front And think how absurd that would be if we asked our women and men in military to not only defend our country, but to go out and make your living and find a place to sleep tonight. What kind of military would we have? That's not the way it works in the everyday world, but in the everyday world, the one who has a vineyard makes his living that way gets to live off his hard work. The one who has a farm gets to live off their hard work. It's the way the world works. You work hard, you get paid. That includes the church. And then he goes on, he drives it deeper, the lawyer. He goes on and says, this is how it was in the law. He says, in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. The idea there was God cared about animals. But uh, as Anos was pouring that grain sledge and working hard, he was the ox permitted to take mouthfuls of grain. God cared about the animals, but as we hear, it's not just animals that He's talking about. This is a principle that anyone who works for you should get paid from what they do for you. I love the way Luther, by the way, commented on this. He said, "Now we all know what this means, what the ox." And He makes the argument from the Old Testament wall that this was how it worked in even the, 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 the religious community. You paid your priests. In fact, he goes on to talk about the temple in verses 13 and then in verse 14. He talks about that when the Levites and the priests were working in the old tabernacle or temple, they were paid by the sacrifices of the people, by the giving of the people. And I want to remind you it was a pretty good living. Think about it. Here's the priest. They get to eat all the sacrifices, animals that were sacrificed. They got to eat all that. Steak. Every day, a priest in the temple had steak and bread for their three squares. That's Texas roadhouse every day. It's a good living. And then in verse 14, the very end of this legal part, he says, The Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living the Gospel, and scholars think that he's alluding back to Jesus sending the 70 disciples out, And when the disciples ask him, well, what should we do about living board? Jesus says, don't worry. Anyone who hears you preach and receives your ministry, they will take care of you and But Paul's premise is this. Any preacher of the Gospel has the right to be paid for working and sharing. here, and let me explain to you what that is. So, first I want to read the pivot part where Paul actually refuses salaries, and he says it twice, first in verse 12 and then in verse 15. Verse 12, if others have this right support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But, pivot, we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything, rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Verse 15, but, I have not used any of these rights. Uh and I am not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me, for so I would rather die than allow anyone to deprive me of this host. So Paul refuses the salary from Corinth. And the reason is that word hinder. I would put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of things. It's an interesting word, it's the only time it's used here in picturesque word literally means cutting. I will not be a cutting. And it comes from the military world where to stop an enemy from advancing toward you on the road, you would go and blow out the bridges and you would literally cut the road up so that it would become impassable. And Paul's saying that I will do anything in order not to cut the road, not to cut the road from anyone being on the path to the gospel. I will give up all my rights, my legitimate rights. I would give them up so that there's a clear path to the gospel. It's a profound thing, almost even being willing to become a tent maker, to give up the salary, his legitimate rights, in order that people would have access. Well, evidently, for it, and they were fighting and bickering. One of the things that's true is that we don't know exactly why Paul refused salary, but an educated guess would be that some would begin to question his motives if he took financial support from court. If you question someone's motives, you question the message. And so Paul says, instead of having the gospel message question, I will just not take a salary, and I'll go, and I'll be a tent maker and work two jobs. is emotional prosperity. And if our life is not giving us emotional prosperity, then we must change whatever that is in our lives in order to bring us emotional prosperity. In other words, what I see around us and what I've experienced even in my own life, if it doesn't make me happy, I I stop doing it. So so let me illustrate. This is one that I've been seeing Every month in my office, I have a million couple come and they proceed to tell me that they're getting a divorce. They ask them, look, what, what's going on? And it's not because there's been abuse or violence. It's not because there's been adultery. It's not even because there's been any kind of abandonment. Do you know what it is? We're not talking anymore. This relationship just not fulfilled. They have lost the emotional pressure of the relationship, so they were barely. Me. I mean, the thought of any kind of sacrifice you can offer here, it's just not in their play So they're out. So I swallow hard and I prepare my speech. Do you want to hear my speech? You might want to in case you ever come and sit down in my office and talk about it. Here's what you're hearing. divorce people. He hates what divorce does to people, especially children. But divorce pulls apart the fabric of society. You know what the main fabric of society to keep society healthy is? It's long marriages that launch families. So when we give up on marriage for no good reason other than our emotional prosperity and suffering. We've changed. And we've let divorce win and it continues to play the purpose of our business. And secondly, I'll go on from there. God hates divorce. But secondly, you made promises. I try not to stop. You made promises. You stood before God at an altar And said, "I will. I do." You said, "So death do us part," and you did this in the name of Jesus, Son of God. I want to remind all married couples in this room that your marriage and those vows you took—they are not about your happiness. They are about a commitment you made to keep your marriage people could look and see the love of Christ on display. It's interesting to me that in Ephesians 5, the great marriage chapter, when Paul says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, wives respect your husband, he goes through all this great stuff about marriage but then at the end, this is what we forget. At the end, he says, but, you know, I'm really not talking about marriage. I'm talking about the way Jesus loves his church. His point, his point is simply this, every marriage is a mirror of how Christ loves The purpose of your marriage is not your happiness. It is to display the gospel. To love when it's hard. Because there's no getting out of the love part. Because Jesus said, you even got to love your enemies. There's no getting out of the love part. And I remind you too, that love, the essence of love, is not a feeling, it's an act of the will. That's what love is. It's a choice to do it again and again and again. Each staying. You're staying there. You made your eyes stay and love. You choose to do it. Feelings. It's the purpose of your marriage is not your happiness. It's to display the gospel. And the way that you love is a man for the whole world to see how Jesus works That's why you're married. But lastly, I've you. if you take in on your marriage, again, there are times to give up on a the marriage. There are adultery, abuse. But if it's just about your happiness, and you pay to that, you're not happy anymore, you just just it. What you're also caving on, and showing that you're giving up hoping, is the sufficiency of Christ, who said he would walk through you through obedience even when it's hard. And if you give up, you're saying that Jesus is not. What other person can make you happy. That's why your marriage is in this state, state If you're touching a message- in the Gospel Coalition blog, he shares this struggle with same sex attraction. quote, Homosexuality is an issue I have grappled with my entire Christian life. There have been all sorts of ups and downs. But this battle is not the void of blessings. As Paul discovered with his own unyielding form in the flesh, struggling with sexuality has been an opportunity to experience more Over the last couple of years, I have felt increasingly concerned that, when it comes to our gay friends and family members, many of us Bible-believing Christians are losing confidence in the Gospel. We are not always convinced it really is good news for gay people. We're not always sure we can expect them to live by what the Bible says. It is simply not possible to argue for gay relationships from the Bible, God's word is, in fact, clear. The Bible consistently prohibits any sexual activity outside of marriage. As someone who experiences homosexual feelings, this is not always an easy word to hear. There have been times of acute temptation and longing, times when I have been in love, but I have learned, that what we give up for Jesus does not compare to what he gives back. For me, these include a wonderful depth of friendship. God has given me many brothers and sisters, the opportunity of singleness, the privilege of a wide-ranging ministry, and the community of a wonderful church family. But greater than any of these things is the opportunity to learn The all-sufficiency of Christ. My main point is this. The moment you think following Jesus will be a poor deal for someone, you call Jesus a liar. Discipleship is not always easy. Leaving anything cherished behind is profoundly hard. Is always worth it. Paul makes this case. Preachers of the gospel have the right to be paid by those receiving the ministry. But for the greater good of the gospel, he gives up his right to be paid and becomes a tent maker. And there's a very picture of the gospel. How does he do it? Here's the promise. It's in verses 15 through 18. Says, I have not used any of these words, and I am not writing this in the hope that you would do such things for me. For I would rather die than allow anyone to deprive me of this boast. How does Paul do it? It's in that word, boast. The gospel is Paul's boast. His delight is It's What makes his relationship with Jesus, his choices for the gospel are what he boasts about. They captured his heart. What's your boast? What's your boast? What do you worship? Everyone worships. It's only a choice of what you worship. Some worship money and live in. live in fear that they're always going to be under someone else who's more powerful. Some live and they worship their body and beauty. They die of. forgiveness of sins and the pull of grace up on your feet and moving forward into that eternal life that begins now and will never end up the voice that can tell your heart what's your voice Jesus when he becomes your voice what Paul says you get two things. Here's the problem you get two things when Jesus is your boast who do you worship what makes your heart sing? When Jesus is your boats, you get this idea Paul says, I'm compelled to preach. You get this idea that suddenly your life is not getting up in the morning and making it through another day. Your life is now a, a role on the stage that God's made. And you get to live it out every day. You are an actor in his kingdom. That gives your life meaning and significance. You are a player. Putting the full and truth of Jesus on display to make the story authentic. That's what you do. Not only that, you, you're compelled to be in the story, but woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. He's tailing the prophets there. Woe. And the prophets lived in this idea that they would do radical things because this life is not the last word. They would live radically because they knew they wanted Eternity into your life now, it makes you a crazy person. Like a prophet, and you risk things, and, and you, okay, here's the word. Here's the word I want you to leave with. You are willing to give up your risk. You are willing to sacrifice. Sacrifice is the duct tape word of Christianity. It's what holds it together. On the seventh day God created duct tape. And it holds the world together. I've even heard it being used to treat children's works. Duct the cost of life, sacrifice is what makes Christianity stand on its feet and keep walking. We are willing to sacrifice our legitimate lives for the greater good of the gospel. I think it's a good definition of what we're asked to do. Sacrifice isn't something we do for God. It's simply setting out the stuff of life for Him to do something with. In the act of offering, we give up ownership and control and watch and see what God will do. With it. So, in your relationships, your marriage, your parenting, your friendships, your work, your relationships, what do you need to sacrifice? Give up. How does the cross need to enter into information? Some of us need to give up our attention to control. Some of us need to give up our reluctance to forgive. Some of us need to give up our resistance to control. We need to give those up. If you want to really know what, what someone's boasting is, so look at the checkbook. If Jesus and you were to sit down your checkbook, would you prosper here? And are you sacrificing any kind of your lifestyle? I mean, are you living on less to give God more because He's your boast? principle this book already right, years ago by the Randy Alcorn and he has I think we're going to have this one but just in the end the fall it's called The Five Minutes After You Die In The Five Minutes After You Die you've noticed exactly opens up in your life, and Jesus begins to fill that space, that role, that place in your heart. And so the question I guess I want to give you with about sacrifice is this. When you're sacrificing, give all these things up, you give Jesus. the week. When the candle is out, who needs it? But the world without light is wasteland and tears, and the life without sacrifice is a good nation. His face is like a service, like the kingdom of God for the people to see. His life goes up in the works. His feet are and inside. He is holy and he is fertile, all the long death with the length